starting from about a month and a half ago when phase two and three was starting in the city, uh, my family and I started transitioning back into our long lost apartment uh, just for the weekends to start. Since the quarantine began in March, we had been staying with family in New Jersey, but the initial decision to leave the city and our apartment uh, was a decision we felt was a little bit forced on us because we found out that there were active cases of COVID at our daughter Evelyn's daycare. And so it really wasn't a choice at all. We knew that we didn't want to keep her in there and we knew that we needed help from family in New Jersey. And so we packed a suitcase and we started uh, this nomadic and exilic existence. But about a month ago, again, right around the time of phase two and three, we came back to our apartment as a family for the very first time. And it felt so, so good to be back. Uh, there was a settling in of not just our belongings, but really our souls It just felt right with us. We we're so excited to be back. I remember distinctly uh, Evelyn, when she entered into the apartment, she screamed out my Minnie Mouse kitchen. And she did that for all of her toys for the next hour. Like she was being reunited with friends she hadn't seen in a very long time. And I realized something. I realized that it's important to have a home and especially a home that you can come back to. You know, when you visit your parents, maybe on the holidays, or maybe you're there now, uh, what do we say? Where do we say that we, we went? We say that we went back home because our parents, where we come from, our families, tells us something about who we are. Um, said a different way, where we've been and where we are currently tell us about ourselves. Uh, and it's the reason why we put up pictures of family and friends in our apartments so that we could be reminded of who we are, of who, what, what's important to us. Do you remember the days uh, when we used to travel by plane um, and you get back from a long subway ride or an Uber ride and you're just tired and you walk into your apartment and you see your couch or better yet your, your pillow and your bed and you do that move where you jump onto your sheets and you even do that snow angel thing on the sheets because to a different part of the sheet that you move your extremities to, it just feels that much cooler and it's just a nice feeling to just be back. You know, by contrast, if you don't have a home to come back to, if you don't have a home, if you're homeless, uh, you don't just lack a pillow, do you? You lack something more fundamental and something more core to who you are. I'm talking about a real place that you can belong, no matter what, a permanent place you can put your feet up, a, a place that can be taken away, a place that gives you both a sense of self and a sense of joy. And if you can have a home like that, especially a home that you can come back to, will that be something? You know, today, our passage talks about that, about how we as God's people will one day go home because God himself will bring us home. And I want to show us three things from the passage today about being brought home. And I want to do that by talking about the renovation of our home, the way back home, and the joy of our eternal home. So renovation, the way, and the joy is what we'll talk about today. Let's first talk about the renovation of our home. Take the metaphor for a second. If you have a, very, uh, if you have a home that's very deteriorated and thus has become uninhabitable, uh, take for instance, you have a, a leaky ceiling or 
uh, carpet that's dirty or unraveling everywhere, or you have termites or rats, um, it's time for renovation, right? It's, it's, it's time to completely redo the thing. And it's really as simple as that. And that's something of what we see here at the start of our passage. Let me take a minute to set the context for us before we get into it. We're in chapter 35, but right before chapter 35 is chapter 34, which is the last chapter of a mega section that started in chapter 13. And it was all about the judgment of God for his people and for the nations. Chapter 36, the chapter right after ours today, um, into chapter 39 is a historical narrative about war, about sickness, about foolishness, and about exile. And so in between these prophecies of desolate wastelands and war and violence and judgment and exile, you have this oasis, a glimpse of the hope of redemption, of renovation, uh, if you will. Uh, let's look at verse 2. Uh, to start together, and we'll start to see the kind of renovations that will take place on this earth. Let's read this together. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with, with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Uh, what you see is something like Narnia, where it was winter, but spring is coming. But spring is coming in the wilderness. It's coming in the desert. And so in the desert, you start to see brooks and streams. And as brooks and streams start to form, you start to see flowers and meadows of flowers starting to blossom. Really, it's something like Narnia. Uh, it talks about Lebanon, the glory of Lebanon, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. What's it talking about there? Well, as one commentator says, the land will have beauty, like the long-standing natural fertility of Lebanon. Apparently, Lebanon was known for its fertility. I know that in other parts of the Bible, it, it, it talks about the cedars of Lebanon, fertility, cultivation. Carmel was or known for its orderly cultivation, and Sharon was known for its innate attractiveness. Just a little bit ago, we did the sermon series in the Song of Songs, and the lovers in the, in the songs refer to each other as what? The roses of Sharon. There's going to be a beauty. There's going to be a vitality. Uh, and it's all possible because the land will be occupied with this new and fresh vision of the glory and splendor of the Lord. Uh, but not only that, look at verses 3 to 4 with me. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What we see here is that weak and tired hands will regain their strength. Shaky and feeble knees will be made steady. We'll be able to say to the anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God, for he will come and save you. What's an anxious heart? What's that? You know, in the Broadway uh, show Rent, which is one of my favorites, I saw it um, when I was such a, it was such a long time ago, uh, but I still love it, love the soundtrack. Uh, Gordon, who's a very, very minor character, and he only shows up in like one song, uh, but he is singing this 
uh, dialogue um, as a participant in the support group for people with HIV. And Sai, who's the facilitator of this support group, um, asks him, well, how do you feel today? And he says, okay. And then, he, and then the facilitator goes, well, how do you feel today? And he says, the best I felt all year. And Sai turns to Gordon, and again, he's singing this, and he says, then why do you choose fear? And Gordon replies, well, I'm a New Yorker. Fear's my life. You know, we understand what it means to have fear and anxiety sometimes because we're New Yorkers. Um, as great as our city is, it can really wear on us and frenzy up our equilibriums. Because, you know, this word anxious, it at anxious heart, it means hasten. It means speedy or quick. Meaning anxiety is what happens when trouble comes and you lose your grounding and your point of references and your heart just leaps off. It just darts off. It just takes flight, leaving you with nothing to hold in your hands. That's, that's an anxious heart. But we're told in this passage that there's gonna be a renovation, a remodeling of even your mind, a psychological renewal, no fear of uncertainty, no threat of crippling panic attacks, We'll be able to say, be strong, don't fear, because your God is here and he will come and save you. And in addition to this, there'll be physical renewal for our entire broken bodies. Look with me in verse five to six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We see that eyes of the blind will be opened and ears of the deaf will see. The lame will not just merely walk again, but they'll leap like the deer. Have you seen deer leap? They leap high. Uh, the mute will not just talk again, but they'll sing for gladness and enjoy. No more disabilities, no more pain, no more disease, no more pandemics. The renovation of all things the land and its people will get back what it once had, the glory and the splendor of the Lord. Now Isaiah is prophesying renovation of land and people to the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, because he's a southern prophet. But there is something much bigger at play here because these descriptions of total renovation signal to us the start of the grand reversal of what happened back in Genesis 3. You'll remember when God punished Adam and Eve for their disobedience and banished them out of uh, the Garden of Eden. Before he did that, he punished them, but he also cursed the ground, the land, saying this. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust, and to dust shall return. 
here we get uh, the theology of work a little bit and how actually work in the fallen state is going to be such a strenuous thing for us. I mean, it's the reason why we dread going back to work on Mondays. Why? Because we know that our work is going to actively work against us. It's the ground fighting us because the lamb was cursed. But the land that was once cursed will be healed, Isaiah says. And the people who are cursed will be healed too because the glory and the splendor of the Lord will renew it. And this is gonna be our newly renovated home, our bodies, the earthly dwelling of creation. Uh, do you long for this? Do you pray for this? We should, because who in their right mind would want the status quo of the current times? Because it's bad out there, isn't it? It's gritty, it's harsh, it's intolerant. It's rash and it's aggressive out there. So the question is, how do we get there? Because we, we know we need this, we, we want this. So what's the way home? Well, as I mentioned in the intro, it's not so much as going home, but it's being brought and led home. In other words, home will come to us. And we already start to see it in the first half of our passage. It's not that we're going to a place of meadows and flowers. But the meadows and flowers are going to happen here. It's going to come to us. It's not that we're going to a place of strength and beauty somewhere up in the clouds where we think maybe the heavens are. No, we're not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to us. Strength and beauty is coming to us. That the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, as Habakkuk says. Home will come to us. Home will happen to us, in other words. It'll come upon us. But how exactly? The text points us to the answer. Look with me in verse eight to 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come. Did you catch those, the uh, those key themes of way, of fools, um, and the ransomed and the redeemed? Well, here's the picture that Isaiah is setting for us. From the meadows of blossoming flowers will emerge a path. And Isaiah calls this path the way, the way of holiness. And what you find are people, people who are on this way, but these people are actually fools. Sounds odd that fools should be on this way of holiness. You think that holy people should be on this way or, or wise people at least should be on this way, but you find fools on this way, but we're told that they won't be led astray by their folly. They won't go astray. Instead, they'll be made to stay on the way. And they'll be called the redeemed and ransom. Well, how can you be both? Well, it's because the redeemed are precisely the redeemed because they were ransomed. They were bought back with a price. And we know what a ransom is. A ransom is a payment of demand uh, by captors. So the way home has to do with the way and fools and this ransom, this payment demand for releasing captives. You see where Isaiah is taking us. His prophecy lifts above his times and lands in another time in the future when all this would strangely start to happen. 
when a carpenter from an obscure town of called Nazareth arrives on the scene and begins saying and, and doing things exactly in this passage. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He pulls into his inner circles tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, fools who should get what's coming to them, but instead, what are they given? They're given a new purpose. They're given a new identity, a new family, a new home. And he starts making the blind eye see and the lame walk and the deaf hear, and you start to see a reversing of the status quo of misery and pain and suffering and disease that started in Genesis. But for this, he would suffer and die at the hands of those religious folks, right? Those people who are trying to protect themselves, their institutions of law and uh, traditions and hypocritical religiosity. But even so, though he would die a blasphemer and criminal's death at the hands of fools, bearing their guilt and shame for sins that he didn't even commit, he would in his final breaths utter, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Beaten of an inch of his life and hanging bloodied on a Roman cross, he cries out and he's forsaken by his God and he expires. He gives his life as a ransom. Mark 10, 4, 5, he says that, right? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see that the glory and the splendor of the Lord that will come to benefit us was only possible because of the glory and horrific splendor of the servant suffering on the cross. And we'll talk more about this. We'll flesh this uh, out some more as we continue uh, the Isaiah sermon series. But for now, I wanna say, look at Jesus, trust in Jesus who's the way home. Do you trust him like that? Do you long and wait for his homecoming like that? Finally, we'll talk about the peace of our eternal home to come. And we see what our home will be like at the end. Look with me in verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We see in these final verses that this holy way is going to lead to a holy city. Uh, and this holy city is going to be called Zion. Now, there's something that we need to know about Zion City. Uh, Zion is mentioned 150 plus times in the Old Testament and 46 times to be exact, uh, nearly 50 times in the book of Isaiah alone. And the first reference to Zion in the Bible comes to us in the story of King David in 1 Samuel chapter five, uh, when after he's anointed king of Israel, he captures and takes the last stronghold of the Jebusites, which was one of the seven uh, enemy nations um, uh, for God's people during that time. And that stronghold was called Zion. And from that time, Zion became synonymous with the city of David. 
Now, what's significant is that immediately afterwards in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, Zion. And because the Ark of the Covenant was that artifact uh, that was placed in that inner inner room in the tabernacle that ha- called the Holies of Holies, um, it housed the unmitigated glory and splendor of God's presence. And so because of that, Zion became a center of worship and became a place that symbolized God's glorious presence dwelling with his people. Later, when David's son Solomon builds the temple, he moves the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and that, and from that point on, because the temple was in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem and all its inhabitants, the people of God themselves came to be called Zion. And so the significance of Zion City, that God's glorious presence dwelt with his people. But you know, since King David, and even before then, sin overtook the hearts of God's people on a massive scale. And so it became more and more obvious, especially to the prophets, that the city of David, this earthly Zion city, was no longer the ideal city that there must be a Zion that pointed up and out into the future, meaning that there would be a heavenly Zion that is to come, that will one day reunite the people back to God. And this is what Isaiah is talking about, that this new urban center of God's redeemed um, will be marked with singing and joy and gladness. And what Isaiah is saying in this passage is that Zion is coming and that those who follow and trust in the way who's Jesus Christ will be led to this heavenly city of Zion where God's glorious presence will dwell with his people again. One commentator says this about this episode. This is the apex of the eschatological vision, a day when the people of God can be set free from their own sins and sins of others when they can come home to their God and be fully restored to his image, when a lifelong struggle to avoid grief and pain will be ended in their being overwhelmed by gladness and joy. Zion City, this is where we're headed. Exilic Church, I wanna leave you with this. I know you're tired, and I know some of you are in physical pain, and I know some of you are heavy with sadness and strife, I know some of us have been bruised and battered in relationships. And I know some of you have anxious hearts, quick hearts, because you don't know what the future will hold. But hear this now, and I really hope that this would lift your heads a little higher and give you the strength you need today. There's gonna come a day when we will no longer be exilic. You know, I'm afraid Aaron's choice for our church's name comes with an expiration date. And I think that's the point, right? Because one day we won't be away from home, but brought to heavenly Zion city. And that will be our home. And we're gonna dwell in God's glorious presence forever and ever to joy and gladness and singing. And so I look forward to that day with you all, but until then, let's press on together in this exilic journey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Thank you that in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, we can be reunited with you in the heavenly Zion city. Come back for us soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.